turn, if you will, to Matthew 6, and we resume uh, our master's teaching uh, to teach us how to pray. Luke 11, the disciples asked, teach us to pray. We don't know how to pray. We've grown up religiously. We've grown up Jews all of our life, but we still don't know how to pray. Obviously, they heard Christ. Something was different about him. And they said, Lord, would you teach us to pray? We looked last week that he corrects several wrong ways of praying. He corrected the Pharisaical praying in which you pray to impress people. That uh, we have to watch even people that if we get up here congregationally and lead the church, I want a guy to get vertical. Don't preach to me during the prayer. Do not preach to me during the prayer. I, I want you to talk to him about who's sitting in the pew. But, but we don't need to preach to each other. Get out of the way. I'll do that. And when you pray corporately, you, know, you have to learn to get vertical. Vertical. Pharisees were praying to impress people with their piety. Christ says, don't do that. Don't do that. Then don't pray like the pagans who think that they will be heard for their loudness, the long prayers, repetitious prayers, over and over, over prayers, because we got to keep persuading God by the volume of our conversation. Talk, 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 because we become the extrovert and we don't know when to shut up. Be still and know that I'm God. Wait. He, he doesn't need a lot of words. He already knows what you need before you ask. The biggest issue, do you know what you need? See, but we're always telling God what to do because he doesn't know, you know. We're always instructing him. And so he's telling, don't pray like the pagans. Well, how do we pray? Well, he starts giving us what's called the Lord's Prayer, but it's really the disciples' prayer. And the first part of it is, Get Godward in your praying. Godward. If you don't want to talk to God and celebrate Him, don't bring your list of things that you want. No, no, no. He says, the first three things I want you to be involved with is, do you want to hallow me as who I am? Treat me as holy. Father, hallowed be your name. I want to revere you and treat you as you deserve. And I know there's two things about you that you're interested in that maybe I'm not, but your kingdom, your son's rule over this planet, and I want him to rule in every aspect of my life. Your will, I want your will. Now, if you don't want the will of God when you approach him, do you think he's going to hear you? He said, if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me when I pray. You know, if you come to God and you're already planning to tell someone off or sin, uh, do you think God just said, you just wasted a lot of time? we got to deal with your heart first. Do you want to do my will? No, I don't. I want you to help me do my will. I want to talk you into energizing me to do what I want to do. He said, what about me energizing you to do what I want? There's the reverse. He changes it. Now, we're going to pick up the second half of this prayer that deals with us, our personal needs. First, the person of God. Now, our personal needs. And he names three areas. We need provision. 
we need pardon and we need protection. And so I'm going to look at the first two. Next week, we'll look at protection. So listen to what he says when he's teaching them. When you pray, say, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Then he goes back to forgiveness. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Pretty strong qualifier. She starts out, when you pray, pray about what you need to sustain life. Give us this day our daily bread. Now, let us put ourselves in Palestine under the Roman boot, that they are ruling Palestine. They are taxing the daylights out of them. They're under a heavy tax burden. Uh, peasants don't have access usually to meat. Their protein would come from goat's milk. Uh, and their main uh, diet would be wheat bread. Uh, if you go to India, if you go to certain, look like a tortilla when you look at their bread and the way it was made. Oil and grain is the main thing they had to sustain life. Meat was over the top. They, they wouldn't even expect that. Maybe cheese, maybe milk. You've got to get the protein and wheat. That was the, a poor man's diet. So every day they had no grocery stores. There was not much agriculture right there in that time. No, no, very little. Where do we get this food? Where daily? It's like the two-thirds world today. I've seen pictures of certain parts of the world, certain parts of uh, even Africa where it's very barren, not an agricultural. Uh, you may have herds, but not raising a lot of food. You're dependent upon these animals. Go to Tibet. Uh, go to other places. And you just admit, how do they survive? They're not raising a crops of wheat. Where do they get it? Daily bread. Uh, uh, maybe, how about, where do you go get a clean glass of water in the two-thirds world? Jimmy Carter's been fighting the guinea worm for years. And I saw some amazing footage of him simply going in and teaching people how to uh, sanitize water, boil it. Quit drinking water where animals are defecating. Quit giving your children dysentery. Just a cup of water that's been purified. Do you drink a pure glass of water every day and never think a thing about it? Well, two-thirds world, it's not to be taken for granted. Has anyone ever traveled afar? You will get acquainted with amoebic dysentery if you don't watch what you eat. A little lettuce could set you back. Because water, hygiene, things we take for granted. Uh, I think when I first got married, we went to Jamaica. We were out uh, away from some of the main towns. You didn't take a hot shower. You got a shower maybe, but it was whatever temperature that came out of that tap. Why, a Western American, where's my hot shower? 
Well, who said you were owed it? Where do you think this water gets clean? We just take so much. And like this, us. Lord, when's the last time, sincerely, have you had to pray this prayer? Lord, we need bread to make it tomorrow. Would you give us our daily? We're right on the edge of having no bread or no food in the house. Well, we'll buy a month's supply of meat at Costco. None of you do that, I know. We buy supplies for three weeks. And, and in your house, you know, when I grew up as a kid, in my mind, prosperity in our house meant mom and dad went to the grocery store and the cupboards were full because when you had older brothers and sisters, I couldn't get to the good stuff, see. They just, they raided all the bananas, apples. There's seven of you, the food can go pretty quick. But you don't know what I'm talking about. Uh, I, how many of you grew up around the Depression era people that I heard stories like this? My mother was told, and I've heard many Depression era people, oh, if a hobo comes to the door, if you've got food in the house, you give him something to eat. Any of you grow up with those kind of stories? Yeah. Well, it's a Depression. It was hard times. The man's on the verge of starvation. Do that. We're over here saying, would you make my latte pumpkin? <laughs> you know, extra foam on the top and a little shot of this and a little shot of that. Oh, man, we're, we're, we're on this side of the food chain. And pray for food. We got more food in this house, and we're, I'm just trying to get someone to cook it. No, I mean, you know, fix it. And, uh, but... Here, these people, their daily provision to even sustain life was on the line. And Jesus says, God is concerned about what it takes for you to sustain life. He wants you to ask him about it. He wants you to ask. He's concerned. Matter of fact, he goes on in this chapter, don't worry about t tomorrow. I take care of the birds. I feed them. I clothe the lilies of the field. Won't I... Aren't you worth a lot more to me than birds and lilies? I will take care of you. Don't worry. Talk to me about it. Wonderful. Let's go on. He says, and forgive us our debts, visa, master charge. Uh, do you think that's what he's saying? No, 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 no. They didn't have visa yet. Uh, he's talking about personal debts to God, and to one another. Forgive us our debts, a word used for our sins, our unmet obligations to you, unmet obligation. Forgive us that as we also have forgiven. And notice that. By the time you ask for forgiveness, you're in a state that you have already forgiven people of whatever debts, the things do you, you've already done that. That's been taken care of. And then he qualifies it in verse 14. If you forgive others their trespasses. Now, debt was financial obligation. Trespasses was a word that simply meant falling down on carrying through. You, 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 you're faulting on the loan. You're not coming through on the personal relationship 
trespass. It meant to fall down. It's used of Adam in Romans 5 by one trespass. He fell down. He didn't do what God told him to do in the garden and plunged the race into ruin. So he's saying, forgive us that. In Luke 11, he says, forgive us our sins. So he uses three words, sins, trespasses, debts. All talking about different word pictures of our relation to God. When I come to God, I must ask him, forgive me of any unmet obligation in my life towards you, towards your word. And by the way, Lord, uh, I'm in the process, or I've already, I've already forgiven those who owe me. I've already dropped that. And now I'm asking you, forgive me and keep enabling me for sure. Keep enabling me to forgive others. Um, what an assignment when you think about this matter of forgiveness. I want to take you on a little Bible survey of what Jesus said about forgiveness. No one said more about forgiveness than the Lord Jesus. He talked, and you know what's amazing about it to me? He's the only human being who never needed forgiveness. And as you deal with sinners, you are amazed at people that give language like this. I'll forgive you this time, but you had better never do it again. Because in my forgiveness bank, I only get one forgiveness once every 10 years. Because I'm picky about who I forgive. You got to earn it. And some of you, your face tells us you haven't. Because you've lost. We see it in you. You tell people who don't forgive. It, it takes a toll on their face. Because their spirit shines through. He said a happy heart reveals itself in the countenance. And a bitter heart reveals itself in the countenance. So I thought the perfect one who doesn't need any of our forgiveness, who kept telling us to forgive, let me give you a little survey of what Jesus said about it, okay? We gave you that slip sheet in there. Can you write down verses? How many learned to write yet? Okay, you just take a little pen because I don't have time. I'll, I'll give quick, brief overview, but you write the verse down, and then you can go back and look at it, and, and I'm sure I don't have all the verses, but here are some. Let's go to Matthew 5. In Matthew 5, he says this, verse 21, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders shall be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And I don't know what, he's probably Sanhedrin is what he's thinking there uh, in the nation. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, Leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, then come and offer your gift. What is he saying? Reconciliation before worship. 
If you reckon, remember someone's got something against you and they've never had the courage to come to you, but you know they have that, uh, make it a priority, basically, to go and seek to rectify that. Now, there's another passage where it said, you've got something against a brother, Matthew 18. You take the initiative and you go try to work it out. But here, it's reversed. You're there. Oh, this guy's as mad as he can be at me, whatever. He's never come. He's never sought any understanding. You know what? I better make him a priority to go to and settle this because God ideally doesn't want us to go to bed over unresolved personal differences. As much as lieth within us. Some people you can never be reconciled with. Are you aware? If you don't believe that, ask God. Ask how many people that aren't reconciled to him. They don't want reconciliation. They don't need reconciliation. They'd rather go to hell than to be reconciled. And God lets them have their wish. But God offers it. He's the one that's taken the initiative. Now, we want to keep on. Look, then Matthew 5. Here's one that's so interesting that I know the Bible's divinely inspired because I would have never written it. 43, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. That sounds good. That sounds rational. Love those that are your neighbor. And man, if you're an enemy, I hate you. That's almost human, but nations don't hate each other, do they? There's no hate in the world. Racial hate, gender hate, this hate, that hate. Well, Jesus said this, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for their demise. Oh, and pray for those who love you. Oh, Percy, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. He goes in verse 46. I just, this is, ugh. for if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? It's hard enough to love folks that love you. Huh? Come on, baby, baby, I love you. Well, yeah, you ought to, you married her. Do not even the tax collectors do the same? Hey, they know how to buy favors. And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. Therefore, be perfect, mature. And Luke translates this, be merciful. He, he uses the word mercy. So I think that's what he's talking about. Be mature in mercy. As your heavenly Father is perfect. A favorite line of uh, Dr. Rollins when he was here, a couple would come in. They want counseling and everything, and uh, they were fussing and, uh, in opposite corners. And, and a favorite line, I don't love her anymore. We just don't love each other anymore. Oh, uh, that's okay. You can still make it. Well, how do you want me to treat her? Treat her like your enemy. Well, good. That's what I'm wanting to do. <laughs> but, but he says, love your enemies. He said in Romans 12, love those that oppose you so much that, he quotes Proverbs, 
you heap coals of fire on their head. Now, when I first read that verse, I said, yes, that's exactly what I want to do. I want to love you and burn you at the same time. But, but coals in that culture, they went and borrowed them from one another. They didn't have any butane. They didn't have matches. They, it was a favor if you gave your neighbor a scoop of coals to start their morning fire. So it was a blessing. But it's a weird kind of a proverb. You know, what, what does it mean to put the coals upon their head? And they carry things on their head. So I'm, I'm, I'm inclined to take it. Some way, that's a blessing, but it sounds weird to us. Be good to them. If they smite you on one cheek, give the other. Wow, no wonder we want to say the Sermon on the Mount isn't for today. Hard stuff. But how do we love our enemies? There's the issue. We are to love our enemies. So, Rich used to say, treat her like an enemy until you fall in love again. Just keep treating them right. Keep treating them good. Uh, that would show that you're a child of God. See, children of God have access to an abundance of love because they're tied to the vine, and the vine is love. And when he flows his life through you, and when he empowers you by his spirit, he won't make you take up a sword and decapitate children in Syria, and we don't take up the sword. That's why it's been easy to kill off our African brothers and sisters when Muslims go and kill the Christians. Because our brothers are really taught to love their Muslim neighbor, not to kill them. But how do you protect your family when they raid your village and burn your church? And some of our Nigerian brothers and sisters are here. They know. They've lived through it. It's a great challenge. And Jesus is saying, I'm bringing a radical new attitude. Love even your enemies. Well, uh, let's keep going. We, we've seen Matthew forgive. Look at Mark. Mark chapter 11. You're still writing these down, aren't you? Don't lie now. Uh, uh, look what he says in verse 25. <clears throat> and whenever you stand praying. By the way, God doesn't care if you stand, kneel, lay on your back. Just pray. And whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. It seems he's not going to grant something you're not willing to grant. It's it's scary verse. I, I don't know how to interpret it any other way. Uh, forgive. If you don't forgive them, I'm not going to forgive you. Does that is that what it says to you? If you have anything against anyone, forgive it, so that your Father, who's in heaven, may forgive you your trespasses. Uh, <clears throat> pretty strong. Uh, look at, I forgot to give you Matthew 18. It's both services. Look at Matthew 18. Uh, Peter was very intrigued by this teaching on forgiveness. And guess what Peter did? Uh, he said, I think this is so logical. By the way, Lord, how many times do I have to do this? Uh, let's see. Verse 21. 
Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? I've already forgiven him once. Matter of fact, I've forgiven him seven times. That's doing pretty good. Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 70 times seven. That's 490 times for the same offense. He's really, I think, just stretched. Can you imagine in the same day somebody coming 470? Now, what would you do? About the third time, you start choking. <laughs> or you say, you don't mean it. You're just lying. You don't mean it. But he, he, just, he basically just went out there as much as they needed. As much as they need to be forgiven, forgive them. Now, this is supernatural. By the way, who said this? Thank you. One's awake. The preacher didn't write this. Jesus said this. I got the red letter edition. Jesus said this. I don't like this stuff. It's heresy. Tell it to Jesus. Then he tells a story. Uh, and he tells a story about a man uh, that got so in debt to his master that he wasn't able to pay it. And the master's going to seize his family, all of them. He's going to throw them in jail until the full amount is paid. The man panics, begins to beg for mercy, and the master says, you're forgiven. Forget it. The amount, if you read the ESV footnote on this, I saw what the amount of money, the talents, 10 talents, when they put it in modern monetary value, it was worth $6 billion. That's, that's the amount he's talking. And so what does he do? I forgive you the $6 billion. Go. It's, the, the slate's clean. Now he's walking out the door, and he goes down a little bit as Jesus tells the story. And he meets a guy. He says, hey, man, you still owe me for that, that debt. He said, yeah, yeah, I do. How much you owe me? $12,000 in contemporary money. And the guy says, but I don't have it. I, I, I just don't have it, man. I beg you for mercy. By the way, I've heard you just had $6 billion forgiven. You, are the master lets you go. What are you going to do? Oh, no. Don't expect me to forgive it. You're going to pay I'm going to get you in the parable. He has him thrown in jail, and you're going to pay, and you're going to pay me back every dime. And the word gets back to the master because the other servants go running to him and say, guess what? Jim wouldn't forgive the $12,000. The master says, go get him. I'm going to make him pay. Turn him over to the torturers. It says jailers in your English, but it means torturers. Turn him over to the torturers. A man that will not pass on the gift of forgiveness, I'm going to torture him to death. Now, here we are as great sinners who've been forgiven who knows how much in God's scales. How much you need forgiveness. The forgive. Jesus is telling forgiven people to forgive. He doesn't ask the unsaved to forgive. They don't have the ability to forgive. They want vengeance. They're full of hate. They hate God. And they're going to hate you. And Jesus warned us, I'm leaving you in a world full of hate, so don't expect the world to love you. 
but among those I have saved and forgiven, you go and pass on the forgiveness I've given you. You've been forgiven much, much. You be quick to forgive the little that others do. Do we lose that picture? Let's go to Luke 7. Write this down in your notes now. Luke 7. We're just showing you Bible, right? Thank you, Kevin. Um, let's go over. No, Luke 7 is what I want. Luke 7, Jesus tells a story. Uh, well, it happens. This isn't a parable. This really happened. If you pick up from verse 36 of chapter 7 through the end of the chapter, <clears throat> the story is told that Simon, a Pharisee, who was skeptical of Christ and who he was, invites him to his house. <clears throat> when Jesus gets there, all uh, protocol of Near Eastern hospitality and kindness, because even if you had an enemy in your home, you could not violate the protocol. You had to do certain things to show your graces. Christ comes in there. Uh, no servant washes his feet. Insult. This is an insult. This is breaking protocol. Totally. He's out of line. Uh, he gives nothing to wash his hands. He does nothing to put him at ease. He is just, he is blatantly wrong, violating all social custom. All of a sudden, in the narrative, of all things, in a gathering of self-righteous men, a fallen woman got into the meeting. How? We don't know. I, I don't think, I, I'm tempted to say, how could she have gotten through the front door? I mean, you don't let fallen women into a gathering of a bunch of Pharisees. And the next thing that's going on, this woman, not at the front, right here, you read the narrative, at the heels, she wasn't worthy enough to be in front of him. At the heels of Christ, he starts feeling this moisture on his feet. And he looks down, and here's a woman that the Bible said her hair is her glory. She turns her glory into a towel. And all of a sudden, she's down here wiping the dust and the dirt and her tears off of his feet. She's adoring him. She's weeping. She's worshiping. She's clinging to him. And Simon says, Aha, you can't be Messiah, for if you were Messiah, you would know what kind of woman is at your feet. Aha, I gotcha. What in the world are you doing allowing this woman to even touch your feet? Jesus said, let me say something, Simon. You have done nothing to help me. You've shown me no respect. You haven't treated me as good as an enemy. You've treated me like a dog. You, you, you've, you've gone down the social ladder. You're here basking in your self-righteousness. You've judged me, and now you're judging this woman. Let me tell you something, uh, Simon. There was uh, two uh, people. One was forgiven a huge debt. And uh, when they were forgiven that debt, 
uh, they were glad. And another was forgiven a small debt. Okay? And Simon hears, what's the point? Jesus asked the question. Simon, who do you think will love the most? He who has been forgiven much or he who has been forgiven little? He calculates. He says, well, I suppose if you're forgiven much, you would want to love much. He said, you have judged correctly. He said, this woman is aware that she's a great sinner. And in the Greek language, it says she was already forgiven before the meeting. It uses a tense that she had been forgiven in the past. Maybe in the last week, Christ may have met her somewhere, forgiven her, go sin no more. And she's returning to Christ to worship him in thanksgiving for the forgiveness he granted her. So she's coming. She's already a forgiven woman. But she's coming back. She's no longer a harlot. She's no longer working the streets. No, she, she's coming back as a forgiven woman. And she said, I just got to adore such a Savior. I've got to adore him. I want at his feet. And then Jesus says, basically, you know what your problem is, Simon? You're as great a sinner, but you're blind to it. You're proud. Your religion has inoculated you from how desperately you are far from God. You're dying in Judaism. You're dying on rules. You're dying on going to the synagogue. And you think you're earning your way to heaven. Well, let me say, Simon, you're not going to heaven. And finally, at the end, he says, you know what saved this woman? He says, her faith. She has placed her faith in me, Simon. And she has been forgiven. And you still don't have faith in me. You still doubt who I am. You still are self-righteous. You're, and that's why, let me say, why church gets so stuffy and why church, oftentimes, we have boring worship services. You know why? We don't have any hell-bound sinners that know they've been thoroughly forgiven. We have a bunch of self-righteous saints that are better than everybody, and you quit worshiping. Because I am somebody, you know. I don't sin like these other folks. That was Simon. I, I thank God I'm not like this woman. And that's exactly what the publican and the, uh, and the Pharisee do in Luke 18. They go up to worship. And when they get there, the Pharisee says, Lord, I tithe on my spice rack. I tithe on my pepper. Some of you have been holding out. We haven't got any spices in a long time. I tithe on my cinnamon. And he goes, I, I tithe on mint and cumin. I, I give you, I am impressing God with what I do. I am earning. He looks over and he says, by the way, God, I thank you that I'm not in a mess like this guy I'm next to. The guy next to him, if you read the narrative, Luke 18, he does this. Right there. He smites his breast. He won't lift his head. And all he can say is, be merciful to me, Lord. And the word mercy means be propitiated, be satisfied somehow regarding all my sins. All it is, be merciful to me. 
Jesus asked the question, who do you think went home justified before God? The Pharisee didn't. He went home condemned, headed for hell. Tithing, all he wants, because you can't get to heaven by tithing. You get to heaven by admitting you're a great sinner and you're going to trust a great Savior. You admit you're a sinner in need. Listen to me. Oh, listen to me. I'm telling you, uh, you can't do anything to impress God. You can't do anything. For God is not impressed with you. He's impressed with his son. It's his son. If you adore his son, if you love his son, no matter how bad you've been, how bad you're able to be, all you got to do is say, I was a wretch, but now I found. I was blind, but now I see. I know I'm a great sinner, and I don't have to rob a bunch of banks. It doesn't mean I broke all the commandments. It doesn't mean I raised all kinds of cane. I'm like Paul. Paul never went out here and robbed. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees, and he just says, I'm the chief of sinners. I would love to be in this church and hear somebody intentionally get caught up in prayer and just could hear you say, Come and accept me, Lord, the chief sinner in this church. If Paul was here, he'd be the one you'd hear. I'm the chiefest of sinners in this meeting, Lord. And I said, wait, 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 Paul, you're getting a little carried away. You wrote 12 of the books of the New Testament. You're God's Gentile uh, evangelist. You're not that bad. Come on, simmer down. And I think that little Jewish man would walk through me. You don't tell me what I am. I take this preeminence. I'm the greatest sinner God ever saved. What about you? Are you basking in your self-righteousness and you're impressed that you think you're impressing God? Or have you said, I'm wretched to the cord, left to myself. I have no righteousness of my own. All my righteousness is from another. I'm clothed in him. I've received it by faith. And he is my righteousness. I have none other. That's all I got. Christ is my righteousness. 1 Corinthians 1.30. To you who believe Christ is your righteousness. Now let me ask you this. We'll stop there. Jesus, it's easy to teach this stuff. When did you ever do it? Approximately 24 soldiers in front of him. And the Lord says, Father, forgive these men for what they're doing now. Not one Roman soldier went to hell for participating in the crucifixion of Christ because they got forgiven that day. Don't, don't put this again. When we stand before the white throne judgment, it won't come up that you guys nail me to the cross because I asked God to forgive you that day. I said, Father, forgive them. Did he? Did the Father forgive Oh, well, nobody, well, that's Jesus. What about Acts 7? As they're stoning our beloved brother Stephen for preaching Christ. And and, and it goes like this. We reject you, and I I just visualized it. Boom, a rock. And he says, Father, forgive, give, give, give. And soon his brains are bashed out by the stones. And the last thing they heard him pray is, Forgive them, Father. They don't know what they're doing. Think of having about a four-pound 
rock hit you in the head, bust out your teeth. And what did you do, Stephen? I told them Christ died to save them, and they hate me for it. Steve Fernandez told me the story that when he was a student at Hayward State, he was there, and they had, in those days, you know, the 60s, you had guys going around, a little bit of the 70s, uh, so many radical street preachers and whatever, and some guys showed up in their cafeteria, and he started preaching to all those students, Christ, you need Christ, you need the Lord, you need Christ. And Steve, with all the other students, took their lunches and began to pound, and they threw sandwiches all over the guy. His face was smeared. He said, ma'am, we threw our sandwiches, we threw apples, we threw... So we drove him out of the room. Don't be coming on our campus. You're in California. God's not welcome on campuses. Drove him out. And Steve said to me with tears, he said, I want to look him up when I get to heaven because I was saved a week later. A week later. Let me ask you the big human problem. Two things, and I just have to stop. They could have just not sung anything. I could preach this message for five hours if I could keep you here. Because it's eating people to death, this matter. Should I forgive? Will I not forgive? Have they earned it? They haven't asked me. They did ask me. Should Well, let me give two stories. I just had a uh, brother share with me lately that his marriage was destroyed over 50 years ago. It was a painful sinful separation. It was heartbreaking. And uh, at one time, he was tempted to murder. He wanted to kill the man that stole his wife. Went through all kinds of struggles. But that's in the past, right? Well, the children went to a funeral where their mother, who abandoned them 50 years ago, who never sent him a birthday card, never kept up. She was at the funeral, and she met with the, her two birth children, and they had her at the home, and they had a good time, and, you know, it seemed like all is well, as it were, it seemed. And the dad, who rescued the kids from the mother, who raised the kids, he said, all of a sudden, what happened 50 years ago invaded my mind again. It's just, just like the invaders are between my ears, and I can't get them off my mind. And I don't want them living in the house of my mind anymore. How do I get rid of them? Forgiveness. Don't collect. Don't rehearse. Don't, don't go over there again. He said, I want to get rid of the invaders. Tell me how. I think uh, preaching one Sunday morning, a woman came down the middle aisle. She was uh, distressed and rather distraught, weeping. And uh, I preached on forgiveness. And I was saying, forgive them. Uh, seek to be reconciled. Do whatever you can, but life's too short and whatever. And she came down and so uh, I met her there and uh, waited till she got her composure. And I said, you must forgive. You, you want to put it behind you. And she kept saying, I can't, I can't, I can't. 
I said, you must, you must. It's destroying you. I said, go to them and, and, and say it's all over. She said, I can't. They've been dead for five years. Dead for five years and still have invaded my mind. I can't shake loose what they did to me, how they hurt me. I think probably one of the most divine things God does in his children, he takes people who are by nature vindictive, want vengeance, and hold grudges, become bitter, hold on to it, become hateful, and he, he just floods the heart with his forgiveness for us, and he enables us to pass the gift to somebody else. Just pass it. Was it your father? I know girls here that their father had sex with them from 14 to 18 every night. They came. What do we do? I said, do you think God can help you forgive? They did. They went to the dad. They forgave him. Incredible. Only Calvary kind of love, only Jesus kind of love can make you do that. Corey Tim Boom on the streets of Holland or Germany, I forget exactly where she was, one day ran into the German officer that killed her dad and her sister Betsy at Auschwitz. She knew the face, and she went up to him and says, you're the man I ought to hate because you killed my dad and my sister. But I want you to know I offer you forgiveness in Jesus' name. No greater love than this God that will forgive them. And yet, it's amazing. I've seen people in the church. They're grudge bearers. They're ledger keepers. They do not have a heart of abundant love. They're, they're, uh, they're choked up. The love of God in them is constrained. They, they, they just not not loving people. I will always hate them. And in hating them, they wind up killing themselves. We don't get the privilege of hate. We don't get the privilege of not forgiving. We've got Jesus for the example, the spirit for the power. And I would just, you know, I have to say this. I always thought forgiveness was rather easy. I had parents that I don't have to forgive. I've had a wife that's been faithful. I've had children that never wrote me off. But I know in this church, homes broken up, kids hating parents, divorces, all hard things to forgive. Not until I have one little personal trial that doesn't even match any of that pain. But I think it took me five years there's a little graphic, don't get carried away with it, but it seemed like for five years in my shower, I met this person every day. And the battle was, are you going to forgive them or bring it up? Are you going to forgive or are you going to choose to hold on to it? And I'd always, up to that time, ah, it's, it's forgiven. See, you come, man, there's nothing to it. Let's go on. You only owe me $5. <laughs> but when it got into my heart in this realm, Whatever it was, I thought, man, I can't get it behind me. I can't get it behind me. Well, I know that God wants you. If you want to get it behind you, God will give supernatural grace and help. Just choose. It may keep haunting you and keep trying to invade, but refuse, refuse to do it. 